Let's pray one more time and ask the Lord to bless our time together as we look at His Word and in particular look at the subject before us today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You, Lord, for this day. It's a rich day of full fullness and blessing where we can partake not only of the Lord's Supper, but also celebrate the ordinance of baptism, which is such a great joy. Uh, It's always such a great reminder for all of us, not just the person being baptized, but for all of us of what our lives signify now that we are in Christ, that we are united with Christ, and that we are risen with Christ, uh, even as the ordinance of baptism symbolizes to us. And so, Father, we are filled with uh, joy and with expectation as we reflect upon the person and work of our Lord Jesus. And we pray, O God, that you would lead us now, lead us in a way that is pleasing to you. And we ask, Lord, that you would just bless our time together in your word. I pray that you would uh, enrich us and give us a comprehensive and a healthy, sound, biblical worldview as we think about what Paul talks about here in this context. So be with us now. We ask for your help. We pray for your spirit that your spirit would be pleased to move among us and to apply this word richly to our hearts so that we can then, by faith, live it out in fear and trembling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today we want to talk about uh, something uh, totally different in terms of the context that we have been looking for. The Apostle Paul moved in the context of this letter, talking about his missionary labors and the spread of the gospel, what he referred to as the word of the Lord rapidly spreading among them and being glorified. And then we transition now to verse 6. Verse 6 sort of launches us into a whole study of topics like work, labor, responsibility, being good stewards, and so a real practical shift in the context. And so we kind of could ask the question, well, what gave rise to Paul switching gears here? And so I would direct your attention to the context that we just came out of, because there the Apostle Paul goes from verses 4 and 5 to talking about his commandments. You notice that, what he says there? He says that he is confident uh, in the Lord concerning them, that they're doing God's will and doing what they command. And so in terms of this command and in terms of the steadfastness of Christ, Paul understands that there is a threat to this church, that those commands, those very commands are then being undermined in the assembly of the church by certain individuals or an individual And that the Apostle Paul now wants to address an issue that apparently is important enough in this Thessalonian church that needs to be addressed. And to be quite honest, brothers and sisters, in every church, this issue is actually something that is typically present in any typical church and sometimes present to a pretty significant degree. And so it's no wonder then that the Apostle Paul switches gears to talk about what it means to be responsible as a Christian. So the title of my sermon today is a profound title. It's called The Responsible Christian, because that's really what we have in front of us. Now, let me begin by talking about 
an overarching theological point, and it's this. The subject of what we could call principled obedience. Principled obedience. You know, one of the problems with our culture today and in this age, or maybe it's just because I talk to a lot of college kids, is that there is an innumerable amount of people in our culture, even in our churches, in our generations, in our schools, of course, that are walking around essentially aimlessly. Uh, I've actually gone to UNT and for no other reason than to go there for one day, no open-air preaching, uh, heart, you know, some witnessing, but I've gone there to do a survey to ask students what their purpose in life is. Do they have a purpose? Do they have a worldview? What, what, are they, what, what makes them tick? What gets them out of their dorm in the morning? And you know, not to my surprise, many students, you know, really student after student was ready to say, I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm, le- I'm searching for that. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to try to d- discover that. I'm trying to figure out what my purpose is, what the meaning of life is. And, and all of that results in a view of yourself that has no real principles by which you live because you're still trying to figure out who you even are, what life is even for, why you even exist, why you draw breath. But for the Christian, all of that should change immediately upon being in Christ. Being in Christ means that we are prepared to live by faith. And living by faith means that we live in order to be pleasing to God in all respects. Matter of fact, that's what we mean by principled obedience. Principled obedience just basically means that we obey God, we, we, we live in a way that's pleasing to Him, and we live in a way that is right in the sight of all men, meaning there are things that are right to everybody, Everybody has to obey the law of the land. Everybody has to obey and uphold things that are honorable, justice, equity, things like that, marriage, family, things like that. We all have to also conduct ourselves in biblical wisdom. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, you know, don't go along with the world. Instead, be sober-minded, be awake, walk in wisdom, and know what the will of the Lord is. And so everyone has to walk in those generalities. And this, honestly, brothers and sisters, as a Christian, this is our duty before God, whether we like it or not, and this is maybe the most important part of it all, whether we feel like it or not. Now, you understand this. Everyone understands this. Nobody has a problem with this. In other words, uh, you know, you go to work in the morning not because you feel like it, (laughs) right? (laughs) Try living your life that way, right? Well, I did my test today, but, you know, next week I don't think I really feel like going to class and taking a test. Well, don't expect a good grade. Don't expect a paycheck. Don't expect not to get in trouble with the law. I don't feel like paying taxes. Well, good luck with that worldview, right? No, we know this instinctually in a sense. We know this. God in His common grace has given it to everybody, just a, a, a general wisdom to obey His law, to obey uh, things that are just right in the sight of everybody, and it should be no different for Christians. Matter of fact, Christians above everybody should be the most responsible. This is really convicting. I mean, just look at this because this really gets down to the nitty gritty of your life. But uh, a Christian really should be the most responsible, the person who is least led around by their emotions. Uh, matter of fact, turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1. Because, you know, I've actually been around a lot of seminary culture 
Bible college culture. And I remember in Southern California being around Talbot uh, Seminary and Biola University. And I remember that it was a fad was sort of broke through the seminary where students were going around. And it was sort of a cliche that, that said that as long as you were authentic and real and transparent with God, that's all that mattered. And so students were even encouraged by their seminary professors, I'm not kidding you not, encouraged by their seminary professors to doubt, to doubt the word, to doubt their faith, to doubt everything. And that was, that was sort of conveyed as maturity, that you're being real and transparent instead of fake and religious. Is that what we're supposed to be? Are we, is there ever a case where we can be, because we don't feel like putting our trust or our faith in something, we can just doubt? Of course not. Uh, this flies in the face of everything that Scripture says, brothers and sisters, because we are told in Scripture, Philippians chapter 3, for example, tells us, put no confidence in your flesh. No confidence in your flesh. James, look at what James says here in terms of living your life by emotions. Forget that. James says, live your life by faith. Verse 5, if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's faith exemplified. Then he says, but he must ask in faith with no doubting. That's so much for what the professors were telling their students. For the one who doubts is like a surf of the sea. It is driven and tossed by the wind. And that, the, 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 literally the, the Greek language there, literally paints the image of, you ever seen the ocean when the waves are kind of clashing and it sprays up and, the, and, the, and, and it kind of produces mist in the ocean? That's kind of what the author is trying to get along. It's just, it's here and there, it's gone. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Wow, listen to that language, guys. It's extremely potent. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. There's simply no excuse in the Christian life to live your life without wisdom, without discipline, and without trust and faith in God. There's never an excuse for that. And therefore, when we are led around by our emotions or our circumstances, the result will always be that we will lead an undisciplined life. Now, that's the phrase that Paul uses here in this context. Let's look at it very quickly. Uh, back in Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received in us. Now look at verse, verse 8. Nor did we, speaking of his own example, did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but we, uh, he says here, we labored, no, no, I'm sorry, verse 7, verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner. I just point that out because in verse 7, that word undisciplined is actually a verb, whereas in verse uh, 6, it's an adverb. So on the one hand, it is describing what he talks about here in terms of leading a life. So that is peripateo, literally means to uh, the way you conduct your life. Whereas here, it actually talks about having lived in that way in verse 7. But here, he's looking at this whole issue of being irresponsible, being undisciplined, unruly. And therefore, it's, uh, it's extremely broad. 
the language, as we will see here, is really, really broad. And so what Paul is going to do here is he's going to give us different guidelines, different principles for how we can live a disciplined life, a life that is actually in line with the teaching of Scripture. And let me give you three of those three principles right now. Number one, Paul is going to point them to his theological tradition. Number two, Paul is going to set before them the model of the apostles, we could say. And number three, he's going to give them principles of hard work. And this is so good for us to get this, to see like what is the what is the biblical worldview look like when it talk when we're thinking about things like vocation and work, employment, going to work. Those kinds of things that seem to be a drudgery. I'll come back to that point, actually, in terms of the way that we view work itself. But the very first thing is to understand that Paul is saying that what he is exhorting them to do is rooted in a biblical tradition. So he says that the person who walks unruly is not walking according to the tradition which you received from us. Now that word tradition, paradosis, is not like tradition like in the Roman Catholic sense of the word where you have like scripture and then you have tradition. Right? That is not what uh, Paul means by tradition. Tradition just simply means the apostolic teaching, the apostolic doctrine, the body of and the corpus of teaching and doctrine that is being handed down to the church by the apostles. That is what this tradition is ultimately talking about. And so I think it's important for us to discern that. But also, what does he mean here when he says that they are leading an unruly life. Because the word unruly can mean a lot of different things. It's a really interesting term, this word, ataktas. It's just an ugly Greek word, but that's what it means. Ataktas. <laughs> and ataktas is a, is a very specific, it's not used that much in the, in the New Testament. It's used outside even of the, of the Bible uh, to describe people that fell into this, co- this category. And basically what the word literally means is that you've decided to step out of line. You have decided to step out of line and no longer sort of file in to someone or something. And so the word means that you are unstable. It means also, the word also was used in the context of uh, uh, condemning laziness. And it, it, the word literally means no order, alpha privative, ataktas, no order. Uh, that is what the word ultimately means. It also speaks of a person being defiant. Let me give you what one Greek lexicon said. This is Spix lexicon. Uh, of the New Testament because he gives us incredible insight, I think, to this word. He says, in sum, this word, listen now, is the one who is defective in action. It refers to someone who is irregular against the rule. Uh, And since in the Christian life, order is established by God and the leadership of the church, disorder can uh, mean sometimes a shortcoming or a discordant note, sometimes law-breaking, moral dissoluteness. The word in Thessalonians here speaks of someone who is, who is freeing themselves from the rule of the community. So you're starting to get the notion that this word is talking about someone that always goes against the grain of the rule of the community. It's someone that has just constantly find themselves in a contrarian spirit, never going along. Brothers and sisters, I mean, this just brings up another issue. What is Christianity? Christianity is not a religion about individualism. It's not a religion that 
glorifies the individual as much as it calls us to corporate life and a life of submission. Everything Brother Brian was teaching about in Sunday school. If we look at the example of Christ, what do we find? We find that Jesus Christ lived his entire life in submission to the law of God, to the rule of God. And if we follow Christ, be prepared to follow Christ. Be prepared to lay aside your rights. Uh, Paul's even going to talk about that here. But be prepared to live as a servant, to be humble, not to be contrarian, not to be rebellious. The the lexicon goes on. He says, one thinks of sin against brotherly love, a propensity to favor discord, a refusal to accept customs and the discipline of the church. Certain troubled ones seem particularly stormy, befuddled types who disturb the peace. At any rate, their walk is not in line. They are culpable and probably stubborn. It sounds like this lexicon was written by a pastor who's gone through a few things. (laughs) But that's right, and uh, that's something that we find all the time, and I'm sure that you can bear witness with this. And this is why the Apostle Paul, when talking about living an unruly life, is actually in the category of church discipline. Did you notice it? It says, it says that they are commanding the church that they keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. Think about that. In other words, what he's saying is that once an unruly, a truly undisciplined life has been established, what comes next is not an overwhelming amount of support and sympathy and empathy and coddling and enabling. That's not love. According to the Apostle Paul, what needs to happen is a certain degree of shunning because we should repel an unruly life. We should not at all affirm or encourage anyone to live in an unruly, undisciplined fashion. And in the context, though I think it has a generality to it, in the context it it ultimately is going to boil down to a person's willingness to work. You know the scripture. He who, who, the person who doesn't eat should not eat. And so it's very basic. In other words, the Christian should never be a leech. The Christian should never be uh, always constantly depending on other people to come to their rescue, either financially or in any other way. They should be able to, as Paul is going to go on to, I'll show you here, they should be able to bear their own burden. You know, the Bible says two things, bear one another's burdens, but in the same breath, Paul says, bear your own burden. And so there's that fine balance of we should be ready to extend grace and love and, and, and extend ourselves. And let me tell you, you guys are in a church that does that. I can testify to it because, you know, I'm a pastor and I'm on the inside of things. And uh, a lot of times I'm aware of how people rise to the occasion, financially support people in need in the local church that really truly merit that support. Uh, But at the same time, we have to be able to have a category for church discipline like this that says when a person deviates so far away from the biblical pattern, the biblical example, and is truly under this category of living an undisciplined life, we need to keep away. Matter of fact, the only other place where Paul uses this word, keep away, stello, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 20, when he talks about the fact that he, would, that he wanted to remove himself from even the potential of financial scandal. That is how much he repelled the idea of even giving the appearance that he somehow was mishandling church 
funds. And it's the same thing here. We should have no appearance whatsoever that we are helping, assisting, aiding, or supporting anybody who lives in this unbiblical, unruly fashion. But the next thing he points us to is not just uh, looking at the tradition, the theological tradition of working hard, and I'm going to get to even more of that, but he also says, follow our example, because that's what he does. Look at verse uh, 7. He says, for you yourselves know you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. So that's, uh, that's obviously known. The Apostle Paul, everything that he did as a pastor, a theologian, a, a, an apostle, a scholar, a missionary, everything that he did, he did it in two ways. He pointed people to his teaching, tradition, and he pointed people to his example, what he modeled in front of the disciples. John MacArthur has a really helpful uh, list here of virtues that the apostle modeled. He says that the apostle Paul was a model of the gospel in preaching, suffering, honesty, integrity, humility, gentleness, affection, self-sacrifice, holiness, prayer, and just as they followed his example in those areas, they needed to follow his example in hard work. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. You should never forget that one of the things that makes the Apostle Paul so unique is that in all of this instruction that he gives, in all of this mentoring and modeling that he did, it was always in the context of missions. And so we we need to firmly grasp that. Uh, There's a reason why he laid his rights aside. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul, on a continual basis, refused even to receive financial support from the church. And that's because he was a missionary. And he was not just your typical missionary. He was a founding missionary. He was the kind of missionary that went into a culture, into a country, into a region, into a city, established a church, got the church going, and then, as Acts says, he appointed elders in every city that he had gone. And so he was really foundational for the, for the work of planting churches. He was, in other words, he was not a Timothy. He was not there long term. He was just passing through, laying the foundation others would build on. In Acts chapter 20, we see precisely what the apostle is talking about here. As he gathers around himself the Ephesian elders and gives them directions on what to do with the church, he reminds them of his exemplary life in this area of work. He says in verse 33, Acts 20, 33, he says, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. Stop there. Because if we don't get the motive right in ministry, we will not get the manner right in ministry, right? And so one of the qualifications for a minister and even for a deacon in First uh, Timothy chapter 3, uh, the apostle Paul goes on to say that, that one of our motivations is that we are not motivated by what he calls sordid gain. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostle Paul tells us in verse 3 and 4 that he was not peddling the Word of God. In other words, his ambition in sharing the Word of God to people was that he get paid or financially remunerated in some way or in some fashion. That was not the goal. I'll never forget, talking about work, many years ago, uh, I was working for a construction company, and my supervisor was really an interesting guy, as a lot of people in construction are. And, uh, I, and you know, first of all, this guy cussed like a sailor, and, uh, and he excelled at it, you know? 
And, uh, and with a straight face, he told me, yeah, you know, I thought about what to do with my career. You know, after I got married, had a couple kids, I had to choose something. He's like, so it was either I was going to go into some kind of, you know, uh, uh, sort of contract work or, or, or you know, being a contractor or, or something like that or management or something like that, or I thought I was going to be a Methodist minister. And he just kept going. I was like, huh? In other words, what he said is, yeah, they, they make a really good living. I think that the average pay is like 150000 a year. I was like, Wow. So he like literally just looked at the ministry as a means to have a good living, a good job, have a good, you know, standard of life for him and his family. And that's all that the ministry was going to be. Brothers and sisters, I was thinking about this. What happens there is that that type of person, probably not even regenerate, first of all, second of all, but when motives like that begin to creep into your heart, when you stop being motivated by the glory and the wonder of it all. No, no, I was seriously thinking of this. I thought, you know, I'm endeavoring to uh, preach a new book here real soon. And I thought, what's the pursuit? What's the purpose? What, what's my heart behind wanting to do this? And I thought to myself, you know, the minute the ministry becomes anything other than for me, the the pursuit, the journey of learning more, of knowing Him, of knowing His Word more, of, of, of right, like, like a child in pursuit of its father, right? Like, like, like really, truly going after the, the glory of God, the beauty of God, the mysteries of God. When I cease to be amazed at the wonder of that, I'm done. Like, I should not teach another time because that's the motive we should have in ministry is that we do it because we are in pursuit of that the, the the love and the affections of Christ and we're motivated by a love for God and a, a desire to know him like Paul says above all things that I may know him and the power of his resurrection when that becomes when that when we lose that as the ultimate motive for why we were in ministry we should not be in ministry it cannot just be uh, that uh, it, it produces a stable income. It can't just be that it's a nice, clean way to live. It cannot just be that it's a place to network and know people. And, and, and it, it can't just be that you have a plat- platform or you have power or influence over people's lives. I'm telling you, those types of subtle motive uh, changes in your heart's motive, those things happen subtly over time. And pastors are particularly susceptible to this very thing. But Paul says, look, I was not motivated by covetousness. Verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands, I imagine he lifted up his hands when he said that, these hands ministered to my needs and to, my, and, and to the men who were with me. Notice that. Paul didn't just carry his own needs. He carried those of his missionary companions as well. Wow. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's the principle. That's what motivated him. The apostles proved to be men of discipline, hard work, sacrifice, so that the church would not be burdened and the gospel would not be susceptible to slanderous attack they were the very antithesis of an unruly life. Complete antithesis to this. They were not lazy. They were not gossips. They were not leeches. They were not meddlers who always seemed to be struggling. By the way, when you have an unruly life, uh, what, if anything that this passage is telling us is that an unruly life is never by itself. 
That's never just the problem in and of itself. It always leads to other things. If you're unruly, you're idle. If you're idle, you're a gossip. You're a meddler. You're a troublemaker because you're bored. And when you're not actually engaged in building up the kingdom, you get bored in the kingdom. And you start looking around at things to do. And and next thing, what that means is you start messing with other people's affairs. But when we have our eyes on the kingdom of God and we know that we are serving in the kingdom, we want to be useful, effective. We want to be a tool in in the hand of our master. Guess what? We don't have time for all that nonsense. We're too busy being useful for him. Paul may not have been wealthy, brothers and sisters, but he was content. Far greater virtue, by the way. He was content. The third thing is this. He doesn't just set forth his example to them. He also is going to give us here, in his example, he's going to give us three principles of hard work. Hard work. Before I do that, what do you think of work? <laughs> what do you think of work? Tur- turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to give you a little time to catch up and get there. The book of Ecclesiastes. Because I, I know what I, how I think of work, especially work I don't like to do, like let's say lawn work. Ugh. Right? My neighbor's here, Lee. She does incredible lawn work all the time. She enjoys it. I don't know how she does it. <laughs> I personally detest lawn work. Uh, I don't have a green thumb in my body. I mean, uh, we got a lawn guy, and he is awesome, okay? I mean, that dude is my hero, you know? He gets out there and does the work gladly, and uh, I gladly pay pay for it, you know? (laughs) But you know how it is. In the ancient world, to be engaged in hard work was looked upon deplorably. In the ancient world, if you had a task, like let's say a carpenter like Jesus, uh, both the Greeks, the Romans, and even the Jews at times would look down on you. You were low class. Um, and, and there's a reason why, of course, because people want above everything ease. They don't want hard work. They don't want to sweat with the, work with the sweat of their brow. They want to avoid all that. They want to increase and maximize convenience and comfort and eliminate any sort of hard labor and toil. That's always been looked down at. But what about us, brothers and sisters, as we look at the biblical worldview, we understand, and you already know where I'm going with in this sermon, that work is to be done unto the glory of God, and it is ultimately worship. And that's why just a few generations ago, when you talked about work, even look it up in the dictionary, people spoke of work as a vocation. A vocation has the connotation of having a divine calling, right? They saw it as noble. And all the way through the centuries from the early uh, biblical times uh, all the way up until the Reformation, people had this view of work that medial tasks were to be looked down on. It was the Reformers, particularly Martin Luther, who dignified work, who saw that every sphere in life was noble and sacred to God. But what about the preacher, Toheleth? That's the Hebrew word for preacher. Preacher in Ecclesiastes has a lot to say about work. And be brutally honest with me today. Tell me if you resonate with what the preacher is saying in Ecclesiastes. This is going to be rapid fire. Okay, ready? Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3. What advantage does a man have in all the work that he does under the sun? The 
con- the, uh, that expects a negative answer like none. Chapter 2, verse 22. For what does a man get in all of his labor and in the striving with which he labors under the sun? Chapter 3, verse 9. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 16. This is also a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Chapter 2, verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind and there was no profit under the sun. Chapter 2, verse 18. I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Isn't that true? Do you feel like that? I was talking to Eric. He doesn't remember, but I do. Maybe he does, but he was telling me that part of the work that he does with software and programming and stuff like that is frustrating because he could be on a project. Tell me if I get this wrong later, but he could be on a project, right? And the company decides that we're going to move on and all that work for what right went into the digital netherworld somewhere (laughs) and what's the result of all of that i'll build you up in a second brother hold on (laughs) but that's the way you could be tempted to look at it i worked so hard on this it's for nothing right what's the point what's the point of racking my brain breaking my back breaking my hands on this work when it's just going to, according to the preacher, this is the preacher talking. This is the preacher talking. And he's the, even the preacher saying, what's it all for? What's the point? What's the purpose? All the stuff you do is going to, every, think of it, God, every house that we live in, all of our houses, someone else is going to live in them one day. What's all the decorating for and the painting and everything? What's the point? See, the book of Ecclesiastes is real interesting because there, the preacher is real stubborn. He doesn't give you a whole lot of clues as to what is the hermeneutic. You can read this book and get really depressed because he talks about, he, he sort of builds you up. You work and you labor and you do this. You, you engage in this activity in life and, you know, and then it all comes to nothing and therefore vanity of vanities, all is vanity, all is striving and toiling and, and, and grasping for the wind. Basically, life has no meaning. You ever met people like that? You ever been like that? I have. Ugh, every time I, every time I, well, my old computer, I've got a new computer, but my old computer, every time I lose a sermon, oh man, it's like vanity of van- I hear Ecclesiastes in my, what was all that for? Nothing. It's gone. How do we recover the work of our hands? Well, obviously, we understand that, that uh, uh, work is noble, but how do we get there? We'll get there in a minute. The principles that Paul gives us here are very, very important. Number one, Paul says, if you begin looking at verse 8 now, he says, we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. So what's he saying? He worked in such a way that he was able to bear his own load. By the way, that's also in Galatians chapter 6, verse 5. The admonition there to be able to support yourself. Support yourself. And that's the way that we ought to work. We ought to work in such a way that we are self-sufficient. In that sense, self-sufficiency is good. 
Self-sufficiency is good. Ironically, this, uh, when he says we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it, this is spoken in the context where Paul also exhorts the church to bear one another's burdens, but here he's telling us to bear our own, as I said. And with this qualification, Paul wants us to make sure that we come to legitimate aid to other person's needs and not simply picking up the slack for their negligence or their irresponsibility. Uh, this happens to churches everywhere. I don't know if you've seen this, but there are professional beggars that go around the churches. You ever seen this? Uh, I've had to deal with these people my whole pastorate. I've driven them to places and gone to you know grocery stores and bought them groceries and things like that. So I want to see, like, you're asking for 40 bucks. Uh, what if I go with you to the store and buy you groceries? You can be okay with that? And they usually squirm like, well, um, yeah, that'd be nice, but I'd just rather have the 40 bucks. I want to see if there's a real need there or this person's just pulling my chain. And they're always just pulling your chain. But, you know, you're a church, and so you want to be gracious, and you want to help out, and so, and of course, everyone starts preaching the gospel to them, and they're like, I've got to get out of here now. <laughs> Backfired on me. So we have to be careful that we're actually meeting needs that pe- for people that are legitimately in need, and not just people that need to spine up and go Work hard with your hands. Toil until you're tired, until you know you've provided. Do whatever it takes. I mean, my mom is here, and uh, I typically don't like to praise people in their presence, but, you know, my mom is the hardest working person I've ever met in my entire life. She worked two jobs so that my sister and I wouldn't live in an apartment. We could live in a house. And I think that kind of ended up costing us, but, I mean, that's a credit to her. She said, I'd rather take, make sure my kids do well, have a good home, and, and, and to my own expense, to my own detriment. Wow. I don't know if I got that much of that work ethic, but I hope so. Paul was like that. In Acts chapter 18, we learn that the apostle Paul was a tent maker. And in Acts chapter 20, as we looked, he worked tirelessly. See, one of the problems is, is that when we view work as mundane, we don't have the right view of work. We think we're wasting our time. Uh, I am susceptible to this a lot myself. Maybe not with work because I'm not out necessarily always working, but, but just with anything, I, sometimes I feel like, well, if I'm not advancing theologically or reading and studying a book or, or doing something, I'm not doing something that's really meaningful. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and that's, a, that's a perspective that needs to be balanced out because, yes, of course, I should be giving myself over to, to the study of God's Word, but at the same time, everything is noble in the eyes of God, like we said. But the reality is, is am I willing to work hard? Are you willing to work hard? I'll take you to a really convicting passage. Go to Colossians chapter 3 because you're only going to accept this commission to work hard with your hands if you have the right perspective. And in Colossians 3, we have the right perspective. Paul tells us in verse 22, slaves, uh, which is modern-day employment. So how many of you are employed? Okay, so he's talking to everybody. Okay, we could just say employees. (laughs) In all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord, whatever you do, here we go, preacher, we're going to balance out Ecclesiastes now. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. 
So once you understand who your real master is, the master who really cares about the way you dot your I's and cross your T's at work, the master who, it's as simple as this. If you are told at work that you need to put together a presentation, you need to just ask yourself, is this presentation something I would present to the Lord? Did I file that the way I would file it for the Lord? See what I'm saying? Did I drive that nail into that board the way I would do it for the Lord? Did I build that the way I would do it for the Lord? Am I, uh, am I punctual the way that I would be punctual for the Lord? Or am I cutting corners? Would I cut corners for the Lord? For, to the Lord? That certainly wouldn't be well. And so when you have that perspective, you understand you are laboring in the sight of God. And furthermore, it takes a certain mentality. It takes a certain humility. When you are working like this, you have to be willing to lay down whatever rights you think you have. Your time, your energy, your effort. Look at what he says. He says, back in Thessalonians, he says, not because we didn't have the right to do this, because he says, look, we don't want to be a burden to any of you. But then he says in verse 9, not that we don't have the right to do this. What's the implication? We do have the right to do this. What's he saying? What he's saying is, we do have the right for the church to financially support us, but we went ahead and sacrificed that right so that we wouldn't burden you. He says, but, he says also to offer you an example to offer, in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to follow so that you would follow our example. Okay, and the point here is that we need to have the same type of humility that Paul had. It's okay. Humble yourself. Just do the work and do it hard. Don't, don't be so, uh, uh, you know, don't, don't be so uh, uh, eager to get off work, to clock off. Okay, it's got about five, ten minutes to go. Yeah. Right? No, work all the way. Don't cut corners. Work heartily unto the Lord. And remember, going full circle here now to Ecclesiastes, remember that the reason why we don't have the perspective of the preacher in Ecclesiastes is because, if you would, Ecclesiastes is not a period in redemptive history. It is a semicolon. Or really, it's a question mark. Is it that... Our work is vanity. And the gospel now tells us, no. Our work is not vain because the gospel informs us that everything that we do, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whatever we do, work, eat, drink, baptize, preach, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And when you take on that mentality, then you begin to see that everything is redeemable. But why is it redeemable? I want us to do two things today. I want us to feel the weight of the fall. Because what does the fall result in? By the sweat of your brow, you will eat, right? And so, and you will work and labor and toil. Are we, just because you become a Christian, do you escape that? No. Now, sometimes it gets harder because you get persecuted at work for being a Christian. You're too good, right? You're too integrous. You don't go along with all the dirty jokes at, at work. So it could actually make your, your, your job even more wearisome. So we want to feel the full weight of the curse. We don't want to undermine that. Uh, Meredith Klein has a pithy statement where he speaks of 
common grace and common curse. Just like everyone gets the common grace of God, we also all get the curse of God. Any ladies here want to testify to the pain of child labor? doesn't matter if you're a believer or not. You feel the common curse. And the same thing is true for work. We feel the curse, the drudgery of it, the toilsome nature of it, oh, the vanity of it, just the futility of it all. And that's, that's very real. We don't want to pretend that that doesn't exist. It exists in this age. But because we believe in an age to come, don't you see? See, everything changed for you and I. When we go to work, there's, everything changed at the resurrection. What makes my experience at work different from before I was a Christian to after I was a Christian? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because... When Jesus rose from the dead, He assured us that there is an age to come. And in this present age, Jesus didn't mince any words. He says, in this age, you will have trouble, tribulation. It will be hard. And that goes all the way down to our vocation, our employment. But in the age to come, you will have peace. Furthermore, everything that you do in this age is going to redound in the age to come. Everything you, everything you do, every word you speak, every motive of your heart, the Bible says, you give an account on the day of judgment. All of our deeds will be tried and tested. Everything we do in ministry, everything we do at work, everything, everything we do in the family, everything will be tried and tested. It will go through the, the fire of judgment to test, to see the nature of the work. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, brothers and sisters, Work hard at work because you don't want to waste your motives. You don't want to waste your energy. You don't, you don't, this is true drudgery. True drudgery is when you just go to work, you go through all the trials that everyone else is going for, and then you, you do it all with a wrong heart, with a wrong motive, and truly that will burn on the day of judgment. We, unlike the world, have the opportunity to redeem our labor. The world doesn't. For the unbeliever, the work of your hands in this age is all you have. That's all that there is. It will not go into eternity. It will not result in any eternal fruit. It will not benefit you in the end. It will be, it will be a period in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity. Everything you did was vanity. That's why you need Jesus. Because only through Jesus does he usher us into another age that gives us hope. That gives us hope. That's what we want to focus on. I want to end with this. Understand the daily grind because everyone's going to be going back to work tomorrow. I understand that we go through the vanity of vanities. I understand that when we hear those words, we can resonate with those words. But for us, we hear the words of a greater preacher. We hear the words of him who is life indeed. In and, and we hear him preach to us Things that are better than that, better than the blood of Abel. He speaks to us hope of the age to come and the daily grind, even though it may seem cursed. And it is. It may seem futile. And it is. It may seem wearisome. And it is. And it is, uh, it is here in this age only that we'll go through that. But in Christ, as we labor for His glory, curse is going to give way to blessing. Here's our hope. 
Futility is going to give way to flourishing. Wearisomeness is going to give way to eternal Sabbath rest. The person in the church that lives an unruly and irresponsible life fails to see the truth of eternity. Therefore, turn with me one last place. Verse 13 of this. This is going to be our constant refrain in these verses. Is the only way that you and I can take encouragement from Paul's words here. As for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Man, if there's something about work is that it can cause you to grow weary. You can start getting really worn out. I'll tell you a testimony. I remember working in the high desert. I was working construction after getting married. I wanted to be a pastor because I thought I had the gift of teaching. And I was working construction. I was working in uh, the desert of uh, uh, Hesperia in Southern California. And my, uh, my job for the day was to go into the attic of every, as many homes as I could, go up there and change a little fixture on the AC of every single one of those homes. Uh, okay, uh, Hesperia, and it's 110 degrees. Uh, there's no air conditioning in these homes at this point because they're brand new. And I'm up there changing one little pipe fixing after one little pipe fixing. I was literally in tears that day thinking to myself, is this all that I'm going to do with my life? Thinking, this is I mean, this is what I've been studying for all these years. I've been pr- you know, praying towards, and here I am, and this is the sum total of my life's existence. I'm a pipe changer. <laughs> and only through the gospel can we really redeem those moments. And God was so merciful. I mean, he, you know, I failed miserably. And so, brothers and sisters, even though you fail miserably at work, even though you didn't have a good attitude that day, the blessing for the believer is that you can tomorrow. If you repent and do the first things over again, okay? So may the Lord strengthen you to be a, a, a witness and to be distinct, to, to be different, and to be disciplined in everything that we do. Let's pray. Father, Lord, in every area, there's so many. I could sit here all day just talking about different areas of our lives that need greater discipline, greater uniformity, conformity to your word we know that at times it's almost like all we have is our example, our reputation. All that we have is our work ethic and the way that we live our lives, either in a disciplined or undisciplined way. And so, Father, we pray that for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your name, you help us not to lose sight of that witness that we're going to leave behind. I pray for every single person in this place. Every believer here that has the opportunity to glorify you in the workplace, that you would give them the zeal, the faith, and the conviction to stand out, to be different, to rise above the fray of what is deemed acceptable at work, to be distinct, to be unique, not to be one in a, 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 one in a, a dozen, or a one, a, but to be literally one in a million. To be totally different from everybody else because of the integrity of their heart. Give them that, con- that, that passion. Give them that, that level of commitment and the faith to follow through with it, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.